Just a word of warning before we start, this episode contains some strong language. The case we're discussing today involves racial slurs. Just, just, just words. Just words. Finding the line between free speech and protecting the vulnerable. You can't say or do anything anymore, otherwise you'll be dragged off to the law courts. Why is this the pressing issue of our time? And how has this affected Cindy's mental health now? I can't hold a conversation without crying. Is she is she struggling? I don't know how Cindy gets up in the morning. I worry about her. Are you upset because of what Cindy's had to go through? Are you a person of colour, Ellen? No, I'm I'm white. Mm, so am I. Can you imagine what it's been like for her children to read these comments? Wrap that black bitch in plastic and drown that black bitch in the sea. Rip that black bitch's ovaries out of her body and throw gasoline on them, make sure this black bitch never never breeds. Have you read some of them? Can you imagine that there are Australians walking amongst us who harbour that kind of violence? And I can tell you that the only consolation there's been in this entire process is that I was Cindy's lawyer instead of Cindy. That's Susan Moriarty. She's the lawyer for Cindy Pryor. So what did Cindy do to end up in this situation? We spoke to Susan last week, but this all started back in May of 2013, when three young men entered a computer lab in a Queensland university. Uh, We walked straight in. Um, There was a computer lab that looked like any other. Only it wasn't your typical computer lab. Uh, We sat down, and about five minutes later, uh, a lady uh, came towards us and asked us if we were Indigenous. The lab these young men had walked into, well, it wasn't for them. It was for Indigenous students, and none of these men were Indigenous. We said, no, we're not. And she um, quite brusquely asked us to leave because they were reserved for Indigenous students. They left and things could have ended there, but they didn't. What happened next, no one could have predicted. One woman is facing financial ruin, and three students have been publicly branded as racists. Now Malcolm Turnbull has come out saying we need to change the law and he used this case to justify raising the bar on 18C. But is the bar already set high enough? I'm Nick Healy and you're listening to Just Words, a podcast where we tell the stories of those that have used 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act and those that have had it used against them. For those of you wondering, 18C is the bit in our Racial Discrimination Act that bans offending, insulting, intimidating and humiliating people because of their race. Today, you'll hear the case of Pryor and the Queensland University of Technology, or QUT. To take us through it, here's producer Ellen Liebeter. Let me start off by saying this 18C case, it's the exception and not the rule. What happened here is unprecedented, and it's clear that there were some serious mistakes made. Right, so there were some royal cock-ups. Well, 
Yeah, and we're going to get into that, but it's important to know it's not actually the altercation in the computer lab that's created this media storm and potential reform to 18C. It's what happened next. So uh, we promptly left, and about 45 minutes later, I found another computer uh, where I posted on a uh, Facebook page. This is Alex Wood, a 19-year-old student who was studying engineering at the time of the incident. The audio you are hearing is from Alex at the Parliamentary Freedom of Speech Inquiry held in Brisbane in February this year. We contacted Alex multiple times to be part of this series, but he didn't respond. The Facebook page Alex posted on is called QUT Stalker Space, which is an online student space most universities seem to have, where students post oddities about student life, crushes from the library, lost USBs, and in the case of Alex, a post about his recent expulsion from a computer lab. I said, just got kicked out of the unsigned Indigenous computer rooms. QT stopping segregation with segregation. And then the Facebook comments began. We have an Indigenous computer room? The fuck? Room exclusive to anyone is bullshit, unless you do it for everyone. In which case, that's just stupid. Since we all feel outraged over rooms that aren't ours on campus, let's complain about the postgrad student labs, lecturers' offices, staff rooms, etc. Some were innocuous, some were, well, I'll let you decide. That is more retarded than a women's collective. Should have said you're Indigenous. They wouldn't know any different. You can't tell these days. We need a room strictly for white males so I can wear my fedora and wallet chain without being mocked. I'm being oppressed here. How did the Aboriginal gentleman gain entry into university? Through the window. Sorry, had to say it. I would love to say how shocked I was to hear this, but, um, you know, I'm kind of used to people saying this sort of stuff in a forum where they feel they can get away with it. But funny enough, these are the comments that are the centre of this 18C case. Alex Wood became one of the defendants for his original post about stopping segregation with segregation. The second defendant was Callum Thwaites, an education student who was 21 at the time. He is alleged to have made this comment and language warning. ITT, niggers. Now, not to sound like someone's nan asking what Skype is, but what on earth is ITT? In this thread. So everyone in this thread is a N-word, is the insinuation. Charming. Now, Callum says he never actually made this comment and maintains that the comment came from a fraudulent profile using his identity. The third defendant was Jackson Powell, a 19-year-old student studying interactive entertainment. Jackson made the following comments on the thread. I wonder where the white supremacist computer lab is. I support the idea of an alcoholics room consisting of a beer pong table, cocktail bar and eight large bean bags, purely for study. It's also fine to start a KKK club. That was another student, and Jackson replied. It's white supremacist. Get it right. We don't like to be affiliated with those hillbillies. And these were the comments that ended up in court. Both Jackson and Callum declined to be interviewed for this episode. So why only these three students, and why aren't we going after everyone in the thread here? Well, not all the students on the thread were able to be contacted, and so only the students that QUT were able to get in touch with ended up in court. There were also three other students that settled out of court, but we don't know who they are or what they said on Facebook. Hang on, hang on. So who's the person who's actually been offended here? Cindy Pryor. She was the administrative officer who asked Alex and his friends to leave the computer lab, known as the Ujuru Unit. Cindy is a Noongar woman from Western Australia, 
and she finds out about the thread from another QUT student. We didn't get to speak to Cindy on the record for this series, but we have been in contact with her. Instead, we spoke to Cindy's lawyer, Susan Moriarty. The comments on the 28th and 29th of May made her afraid. The whole mention of white supremacists to people of colour has a really deep visceral meaning and it conjures up for them as nothing else does, hangings, uh, lynchings and burnings. So so for Cindy, uh, when she's reading these comments, um, you know, in the afternoon, her fear was that there'd be a, a delegation, uh, you know, organised to, you know, to visit the Indigenous Studies Unit to put them all right. After Cindy found out about the posts, she said she became worried about her personal safety. She left work the following day, the 29th of May 2013, and tried to negotiate a return to work through the equity unit at QUT. She wanted the Ujuru unit to be more secure, and one of her requests is that the unit was patrolled by a security guard. What she wanted principally is uh, a security guard to patrol once in the morning and once in the evening, and she wanted a duress alarm. A duress alarm is a panic button. We contacted QUT to be part of this episode, but they declined. So was QUT useful at all during this process? No, not they're as useful as an ashtray on a motorbike. I mean, what sort, what sort of employer, what sort of employer allows, you know, one of their, their representatives to say, perhaps you could learn, perhaps you could learn self-defence? That was one of the suggestions. That was one of the suggestions advanced that Cindy could learn self-defence if she felt unsafe. So Cindy never did return to work. On top of this, Cindy claims she suffered a permanent psychiatric injury because of the threat to her safety. According to Susan, this diagnosis of psychiatric stress has been accepted by a work cover panel. Now, this sounds to me that what we basically have is an employment dispute. How did this end up in front of the Human Rights Commission? Well, once Cindy realised QUT wasn't making the changes she requested to get her back to work, keeping in mind we don't have QUT's side of the story, Cindy decided to file a claim with the Human Rights Commission on the 27th of May 2014, one year after the incident occurred. And to really understand this case and why it caused as much controversy as it did, you need to understand how the Commission's process works. So Cindy's complaint under Section 18C has two arms. The first was against a number of students for the comments you heard before. And the second was against QUT, who Cindy says knew about the Facebook page and the types of discussions that went on there, but didn't do anything about it. And I'm guessing this is where things get messy. Yeah, but it shouldn't, in theory. Going to the Human Rights Commission is actually meant to be easier than going to court. According to the Commission's website, you can make a written complaint if you think you have been racially discriminated against. The reason why this particular claim got messy is because it took 15 months to make its way to conciliation. So during that 15 months, which is a fairly long time, what's happening? Well, the Human Rights Commission is meant to investigate the claims, and that involves contacting both parties and getting more information about the complaint. And then the two parties go to conciliation, It's meant to provide a chance for the people involved to come together, sit across the table from one another and work out a solution so they don't have to go to court. But 15 months seems like an unnaturally large amount of time to investigate the claim made by Cindy. It is. And according to the Commission, this is very much the outlier for race discrimination complaints. 
On average, it takes four months to resolve a complaint. And 84% of cases under the Racial Discrimination Act are successfully conciliated. So why is this particular case taking so damn long? Remember this incident took place in May 2013. Cindy filed the claim a year later, and you have one year to file a claim after an incident takes place. So that takes us to May 2014. Now, normally, the Commission would start investigating a claim, only in this case, lawyers for Cindy Pryor and QUT were already negotiating on how to best resolve the matter privately. So the students weren't notified because everyone thought that Cindy and QUT would work it all out. Here's Gillian Triggs, President of the Australian Human Rights Commission, giving evidence at the parliamentary inquiry in February this year. Ms Pryor's lawyers then advised the Commission that they were currently negotiating with QUT to resolve the complaint. Ms Pryor and the university, or with the university's agreement, asked the Commission not to take any action to serve the complaint on the students or to list the matter for conciliation until these discussions had been finalised. The Commission agreed to this request as it appeared that the negotiations had a good prospect of successfully resolving the complaint. And I might add that the Commission will typically take direction from the parties because this is a voluntary process. And if they feel that there's a possibility of resolution, we would normally give them a certain measure of discretion to seek a solution. But these private negotiations didn't go anywhere. Two years after the incident, in May 2015, the Commission asked the parties to speed things up. The Commission again asked Cindy if she would like to pursue the claim against the students, and this time she said yes. Critically, Queensland University of Technology told the Commission that if Ms Pryor decided to pursue her complaint against the students, the university wanted to be responsible for notifying them. And uh, I'm guessing this is the point of contention? Yep. QUT says they will notify the students and the Commission takes them on their word. The Commission sets a date for conciliation and gives the parties six weeks' notice. Only QUT struggles to locate some of the students named by Cindy in her complaint. There's a bit of back and forth between QUT and the Commission about changing the date to give them more time to find all the students, but the date remains set in stone. Eventually, QUT says two students will attend the conciliation. The conciliation takes place in August 2015, two years and three months after Alex and his friends had been asked to leave the computer lab. The conciliation conference duly took place on the 3rd of August. Two of the students attended. The Commission understood that all of the students had been notified and that the two students who attended were the only ones who wanted to attend. Here's that notification according to Callum. I got the email three days before the conciliation conference from the HR director that simply said, here's a complaint that you're named in. I emailed her the next morning, giving myself some time to sleep on it. I got a response that they would prefer not to write anything in writing and that they would like to speak to me on the phone, which is never a good sign. The red flag went up. Oh, yeah, one or two red flags. The, the conversation was mostly about how it's, a, it's optional, it's not compulsory, you don't have to attend. I wouldn't worry too much about this. By the way, our lawyers aren't representing you. Our lawyers will be there. They're not representing you. The university were very hands-off, and it was all about protecting their reputation. I'm trying to understand why, given the university had kind of indicated you not to, t- not to show up to that conciliation conference, why you decided to go along. Because I'm not an idiot. <laughs> because if the, looking at it, it's quite a serious thing. The Australian Human Rights Commission, a complaint of racial vilification, and the university saying... Don't worry about it, it's fine. But, and they didn't, they didn't go into more detail with you when they no. had those discussions with you? No. 
They said that they'd been, they'd been trying to resolve it, and it was all to do with this incident in 2013. There was no way I was not going to turn up to that. And Alex Wood said QUT tried to convince him not to go along to the conciliation. Uh, Did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I was on a a different um, sort of wavelength. I had commitments that Monday. Um, After talking to uni, I felt dissuaded. Um, I thought I was in essence a witness and I didn't want to get involved and I thought they were going to handle it. So why do people go to conciliation? I mean, what what, what normally comes out of it? Usually someone just wants an apology. Sometimes the person making the complaint will get some money, which is called damages, but mostly they just want an acknowledgement that what happened was wrong. So Cindy and the students in QUT, they all troop off to conciliation. What did they want to get out of that? Well, we don't actually know because conciliation is private. What we do know is that the conciliation failed. And when that happens, the commission closes the file. They say, these two parties can't conciliate. There's nothing more we can do. Now, remember, the vast majority of cases do end up getting conciliated. This is just one of those cases where no agreement could be reached. So we have basically one case where, when it all boils down, it's about who was meant to notify who. Yep. As much as the media has made out its 18C at fault here, I don't think it's the law but more the process that's failed. Who do we point the finger at here? I mean, is it the Human Rights Commission or is it QUT at fault? The media has pointed the finger at the Commission, mostly. And up until Gillian Triggs fronted the parliamentary inquiry in February, we had no idea what really happened in the lead-up to that conciliation. The Commission had refused to speak about this case in detail. But this is the point the media has really been flogging here, that the Human Rights Commission was incompetent at handling complaints. Well, I think there was general disbelief that a statutory body, which is what the Human Rights Commission is, with significant funds and and many years of experience of handling racial discrimination cases and allegations, that it would literally not alert the students themselves that they were accused of unlawful conduct under Section 18C. This is Headley Thomas. He's the National Chief Correspondent for The Australian. He broke the story of the QUT3, as the trio have been dubbed, and has followed it ever since. And the newspaper Headley works for, they really don't like Section 18C. And the Human Rights Commission goes on to become the fall guy for their campaign against Section 18C. And Headley has openly admitted to me that the Australian has an ideological standpoint when it comes to Section 18C. The Australian's position on 18C is very clear. We believe that you know it, it should be, um, if not abolished, then significantly reformed because of the way it has been misused, with this case being such a perfect example. The Australian believes that public debate and the public shaming that comes when people are making racist, ugly comments and 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 exposing themselves, the public shaming of those people is the best antidote for this this sort of repugnant behaviour. 
The Australian certainly has an axe to grind when it comes to 18C. It published 319 articles on Section 18C last year alone. 319? To compare, the Sydney Morning Herald was the newspaper that published the second highest number of articles. They had 50 articles in 2016. And this case of the QUT3, it was the subject of 70 articles by The Australian. Headley wrote well over half of those. Now, that's a lot of column inches to throw into just one section of one piece of legislation. And we can safely say that this campaign exerted so much pressure, it's why we've ended up with a parliamentary inquiry. Here's Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull speaking to ABC Radio in November last year. I think the Human Rights Commission has done a great deal of harm to its credibility by bringing the case against the Queensland students. What it shows is that the Human Rights Commission must urgently review the way in which it manages these cases. But Turnbull and The Australian are not the only players that have kept 18C in focus. There is another key character thrown into the mix. Queen's counsel Tony Morris, the barrister who represented Jackson Powell and Callum Thwaites. Tony really doesn't like 18C. He thinks that it's basically a shakedown. Here he is speaking at the parliamentary inquiry. It's no good for anyone. It's no good for the Indigenous and other minorities that it's designed to protect. It, it, it creates a victim mentality. It gives people the sense that if they've been insulted or offended, uh, there's suddenly a, a, a tap that can be turned on and, and the money will start flowing. And Tony's logic is that the Human Rights Commission, by extension, is involved in this alleged racket to throw money at minorities. This is an extract from Tony's submission to the inquiry. He thinks that to avoid being branded as racist, people accused of racism just pay up. There is no upside for the respondents but to pay however much is needed to make the case go away. All this proves is that the AHRC has come up with a uniquely effective system for promoting blackmail on an industrial scale. We asked Tony to be part of this episode and tell his side of the story, but in an email he responded, Whilst I appreciate your offer in the interests of balance to let me tell my side of the story, I am frankly unsure what remains to be said. If you seriously think there is something worth talking about, I should be happy to reconsider my position. But, at present, it seems to me that the entire exercise is, like Cindy Pryor's claim, a complete futility. Tony's views on 18C are pretty radical, to say the least. To temper them, we ask Simon Rice whether having Section 18C is creating a culture of victims. Simon is a professor of law at the Australian National University. So, yes, 18C recognises victims as much as the law of torts or negligence recognises victims and car accident laws recognise victims. That's completely unremarkable. It should be celebrated, the fact that we're civilised enough to care about people being hurt. But when it comes to 18C, Tony has a different strategy up his sleeve to avoid apologising or settlement during conciliation. His plan is publish and be damned. So Tony went to the media. Exactly. He's the reason why this case has been so well covered. And Tony represented the late Bill Leake as well, the cartoonist from The Australian who was also accused of racism under Section 18C. That complaint was later withdrawn. But in both cases, Tony took to the media as a prophylactic against the Commission's protection racket. His words, not mine. I just think that's an extraordinary statement coming from some, like from a member of the bar. 
Absolutely. And a key moment from the inquiry was Tony being questioned by Labor Senator Graham Perrett about his submission to the inquiry. Uh, well, it's, it's obviously an extraordinary submission for its tone, very disparaging comments about a raft of people, including Professor Julian Triggs, uh, the Race Discrimination Commissioner, Tim Supuba Masani. Thank you, Supomasan, the Australian Human Rights Commission itself. In fact, almost everyone mentioned in the 153 pages cops a, a bit of a spray. I, I was very surprised by, I mean, you're a very well-known senior counsel and the tone of your submission attacks public servants in particular. You question the qualifications of the President, Professor Julian Triggs. Indeed. Uh, you question the, the functions. In fact, you make the reference, and I think you use the term literally when, when using it, that the Australian Human Rights Commission's functions are propaganda inspired by Dr Joseph Goebbels. Yes. And, and, uh, and, and, and the legislation and you, and you that is say, propagating... And you say that they are actually your your settled remarks as a senior counsel is that they are involved in blackmail and extortion. Absolutely. That's um, to, to, for a senior counsel to make those comments about a fellow professional, a fellow lawyer, and a statutory body. That's quite quite remarkable. It is. It is, and. I would, would you, never, would you uh, say that they're unprofessional comments for a senior member of the Queensland Bar? No, no, they're, they're, they would only be unprofessional if they were unjustified. <laughs> I mean, wow, for a start. But what we really have here is a couple of influential people who've set the news agenda against Section 18C. It's a valid question, as is the question of whether conciliation should happen in private. There is a genuine question mark about whether we should be having these debates out in public because that way we can educate people about what is and isn't racist behaviour. As Headley said earlier... The public shaming of those people is the best antidote for this this sort of repugnant behaviour. All right. Now, to me, this is a really interesting argument because, again, maybe I'm off base, but it sounds like they want it both ways. Free speech is both something that needs to be wildly protected and you should be able to say anything that you want, but at the same time, publicly shame people who do say racist things because they shouldn't have said it. Yep. And of course, it's the media organisations setting the agenda for what is and isn't racism, not the victims or minorities subject to race hate. And this is why the Human Rights Commission conducts conciliations in private. Here's Race Discrimination Commissioner Tim Sopomasan. The other thing to recognise is that uh, having an open process or disputes playing out in public isn't necessarily something that's conducive to resolving disputes. Uh, When you do have media scrutiny of of issues, uh, the experience in anti-discrimination law and in Indeed, other areas of law and at the federal and state level uh, demonstrates that it can, it can heighten the antagonism involved and entrench parties in their position rather than keeping open a possible dialogue. And Professor Simon Rice says the alternative to the Human Rights Commission, which is going to court, is even more expensive and time-consuming. The same people who are complaining about the Human Rights Commission process, which isn't powerful at all, I mean, it's a conciliatory, non-binding process. The same people who are complaining about that would find themselves going straight into court, facing the full weight of court proceedings. And I can't believe that that's their preference. 
And going to court is quite public. You only have to look at the aftermath of all this to find out why a complainant might want to keep things quiet. Since making the complaint against the students, Cindy has been subject to some really terrible online abuse. Lawyer Susan Moriarty passed on a 4,000-page document to me of screenshots of some of the comments about Cindy. These comments have been public on Facebook pages, on news sites, on Reddit. They've come from all over the world, even going directly to Cindy's personal Facebook account. I've acted for um, hundreds and hundreds of clients over the last 18 years. I've never, ever seen a client subjected to this in my professional life. And I know it's because she's black. It sounds like a really similar story with uh, Melissa Dinnison, uh, who made the complaint against Bill Leake. She ended up withdrawing that complaint because of the relentless media attention she was on the receiving end of. Tony thinks he's doing his clients a favour by circumventing the Human Rights Commission in this way. But it's an unfortunate consequence of his strategy that the people making the complaints, at least in these two examples, they're the ones who are copying the media flack. So, what happened after conciliation failed? Cindy exercises her legal right and files a claim with the Federal Circuit Court under Section 18C. Now, that's something that the Commission does not do on behalf of anyone. It's up to a complainant to take a matter to court if they wish to do so. Here's Tim Sapomasan again. But what we can say is this. Very few matters reach court. Last year, we finalised 86 complaints involving 18C and D under the Racial Discrimination Act, and only one of those 86 cases went to court. Well, after all that, what was the result with the comments made by the students? I mean, did the court decide they were actually racist? Well, no. So the case ended up in the Federal Circuit Court in November last year, and it was pretty quickly thrown out. The case against Alex, Callum and Jackson was summarily dismissed, which means it never got to go to trial because Cindy's claims against the three students were deemed to have no reasonable prospect of success. Judge Jarrett basically said that Cindy Pryor overreacted to the comments. No reasonable person in her shoes would feel offended, insulted, humiliated or intimidated by Alex's comments and that Jackson's white supremacist comments were a poor attempt at humour. The judge also accepted Callum was not responsible for the ITT N-word comment and didn't make a decision on whether it was offensive or not. But Cindy appealed that decision, and in March this year, that appeal was rejected. She now has to pay the legal fees of the three students, which is over $200,000. The appeal judge, Justice Dowsett, criticised all three parties for not notifying the students, In the following extract, the students are the respondents. It seems that Ms Pryor's solicitor, QUT, and the Commission all knew that the respondents had not previously been notified of the proceedings in the Commission. To say the least, it's surprising that those parties assumed that it was appropriate to proceed in that way. Although the respondents do not allege prejudice flowing from the delay in applying for leave to appeal, one cannot but wonder why they were so treated. She also dropped her case against QUT. If you remember, Cindy's claim to the commission was against the students and QUT, as was her claim in the federal court. 
The case against QUT was still on foot until March this year, but Cindy recently decided not to pursue that matter any further. In a press release, QUT Vice-Chancellor Professor Peter Coldrake said, QUT is pleased that Ms Pryor has decided to discontinue legal proceedings against the university, but stresses there are no winners here. This case has gone on for far too long. Its extension to involve students shouldn't have occurred, and this was something the university strove to prevent. So, Cindy's lost. The Human Rights Commission has been dragged through the mud. QUT's got muck all over it. What's happened to the students? Some of the students have been quite public in what's happened to them. For them, the punishment has been in the process. Here's Alex Wood speaking at the inquiry. I was, af- I was afraid. I thought uh, I was going to lose my job and potentially not be able to get a job after uni. I thought my friends would shun me if they thought I was a racist. But most importantly, I thought that I had incredibly disappointed my mum and my dad. So I don't think being, I think being wrongly accused as a racist under 18C is not just defamation. It allowed for a sanctioned attack on my character, on who I am and my upbringing. Alex was also facing over $40,000 in legal fees for suing Cindy's lawyer, Susan, for suing him. This is an extra claim he personally brought. Remember, Cindy has to pay for the actual 18C case against him. Alex argued that Susan never should have taken on Cindy's case because it was completely hopeless. Even though Cindy didn't win in the end, the judge still found the case did have some merit. So Alex was left responsible for his legal fees and found himself 40k in the red. But he managed to raise over $60,000 on a crowdfunding website to pay these fees. It even included a donation from former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Well, thank you, Tone. And uh, what did Alex end up doing with that extra 20 grand? Well, he says he's using it to help some of the other students out with their legal fees. And as for Callum Thwaites, he abandoned his degree in education because he thought this allegation of racism would follow him for life. Here he is answering questions by Liberal Senator James Patterson. So, literally, you were an innocent bystander. You had no connection to the incident on the day. You wrote nothing about it. You didn't know the person involved. Exactly. All I did was exist and, and I got dragged through the court. And the, the, the end result of this, you, you existing and being a student at the university, is that you went through this entire legal process with all the costs and pain involved in that. Yes. And the stress and the anxiety and the concern about my career, realising that we live in a world where technology and social media is, is so ingrained that students Google and Facebook stalk their, their teachers and all it takes is one, mm. to find something about the case, bring it up to other students or to their parents and then every single time it's done you have to go through the process of, well I didn't do it, the court found this and I already know that people don't believe me. Um, so, just to clarify, you were studying teaching at the time? I was studying secondary education, majoring in biology. So you decided, having been accused of racism, that ultimately some people will never believe your innocence? Exactly. And therefore you, you discontinued your teaching studies, is I've, that right? I'm on a leave of absence at this time, but I will be withdrawing from the course completely. And you're instead now studying to be a lawyer? I'm studying law at QUT, surprisingly. And... Yes, so I'm, I'm six months through with summer semester as well. No disrespect to you and your new vocation or Mr Morris. I'm not sure it's a net win for society to have one less teacher and one more lawyer. No, me either. <laughs> um, but, but if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, clearly, clearly. 
And in a surprising turn of events, Callum now works for Tony Morris as his managing clerk and even assisted Tony with his submission to the parliamentary inquiry. We don't know much about the third member of the QUT3, Jackson Powell, as he's not been as vocal as Callum and Alex. Although the QUT3 and Tony Morris were all named 2017 Australians of the Year by the Australian newspaper for being champions of free speech. And any accolades for Cindy as well? Cindy is now over $200,000 in debt after being ordered to pay the students' costs for the whole ordeal. She's had to move states, get a new job, and she's still suffering from a psychiatric injury. And don't forget that as we heard at the start of the show, she's still copying this kind of abuse. So this 18C case sparked a call for some changes in how the Human Rights Commission handles complaints. The parliamentary inquiry where Callum, Alex and Tony all gave evidence has come back with their report. Among the recommendations was that the Commission should notify all respondents who are named in a complaint. The Commission should adopt time limits for handling complaints and have lawyers representing complainants certifying that a race-hate complaint has a reasonable prospect of success before it moves forward. These recommendations are pretty clearly targeted at stopping a repeat of prior and QUT. So what have we actually learnt here? I mean, what created this debacle was, I guess, a legitimate question. Could have been phrased a lot better, but it was a legitimate question about safe spaces and why we have them. That's what I think is kind of missing in this whole debate. Our budget didn't stretch to visiting QUT, so I visited another Indigenous safe space, Jumbana, at the University of Technology, Sydney. Hello, I'm Marie Graham from Jumbana Indigenous House of Learning. I'm the Deputy Director of Indigenous Students and Community Outreach. I'm a Wiradjuri woman from Dubbo, New South Wales. How did safe spaces for Aboriginal people come to be set up? This is a historical a way to encourage students to come into university. Historically, we've been locked out of the education system and we, we pride ourselves on being the students' home away from home. You know, when they're moving to a big city, they need to be embraced and, and feel like they're here in a culturally safe and supportive environment. And, and I think we do that very well here. So is it racist to say that these spaces are stopping segregation with segregation? I think people are always curious about why people have something different offered to them. I wouldn't say that it is racist to question that. I think people are curious. However, you know, this is this is just an opportunity for our people to feel safe. But I still feel like this debate is a bit white. I wanted to understand how a few words could get under your skin so much you end up spending four years of your life pursuing it. Hello, I'm Chris Bonney. I'm Naranga and Gwinjamara. I'm from South Australia and Western Victoria. Um, I am Greta, which is, that's my totem, which is Great White Shark. Chris had a shopping list of examples of the types of racism he experiences on a regular basis. I see it a lot. You know, I've been at barbecues and someone said, oh, Aboriginals are primitive. Hey, how come Aboriginals are primitive? I was coming home from work. I was I work in the city, so I was at Town Hall Station. And then this guy who was walking around, he was a construction worker or something, he was walking around with a beer bottle at 5.30 in the afternoon. And 
to have a go at me and then call me a black sea. And then the other time, this other this other, this person was walking next to me and started pushing me. Literally started pushing me. And um, I said, "Excuse me, why? Excuse me, don't push me." And um, blah blah. And then she called me a black cunt and walked off. And do these instances of you know, in in themselves, like if it happens once or twice, you know, water off a duck's back. But when it happens over and over again, does it? Really play oh yeah, on you? You, it, it does play on you. You fume, you you fume in yourself, and you. Um, but it uh, it's it's something that um, does affect us. It's 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 something that it's there all the time, and you feel like just slapping them or having a fight. But it's like that doesn't solve anything. Do you get sick having sick of having to explain yeah. this stuff? You know what? It's twenty seventeen. And I wonder why, I, I always talk about things and I ask people, why is it that we're in 2017 and we're still got these issues? And those issues are now manifesting in let's get rid of the racial discrimination that, because people have the, the rights to the freedom of speech. And it's like racism is not a freedom of speech. For under your own roof, you could be an idiot, you can um, hate women, you can hate Aboriginals, you can hate Muslims. But when you're out in the public space, you've got other people there. Those other people have rights to be free of racism. Whatever you think of the actual process of the Human Rights Commission after this case, you can't deny the importance of having an organisation and a law set up for the protection of vulnerable people who are targeted simply for being themselves. And the last word goes to Professor Simon Rice. The idea of law is really interesting. You know, why we have laws in the first place. We have laws significantly for symbolic value. I mean, we have a law against murder, but people still murder. So it's there as a public statement of values, of what our society thinks is permissible. And if you resolve from that, if you say, well, we are repealing 18 CND, the very clear message is, the conduct that was once banned is now permissible. Go for it. You know? Say what you like because people ought to be thick-skinned. So I think it would be a hugely damaging statement of our social values if we were to abandon that. Thank you for listening to Just Words. Uh, in our next episode of Just Words... Well, it's one of our favourite topics when discussing 18C, angry white men. I'm your host, Nick Healy. I'll be back next week with more stories from Just Words. Just Words was created by Anthony Dockerell. This episode produced by Ellen Liebeter. Our executive producer is Emma Lancaster. Miles Martignoni is our supervising producer, and he also did the sound design. Original theme music composed by Joe Koning. Research and assistance by Miles Herbert, Joe Koning, Taylor Fuller and Shane Anderson. Thanks also to our pod doctors, Tim Roxburgh, Kirsty Melville, Margot Kelly and Lawrence Bull. Marketing communication support by Andy Wang. This podcast was made by 2SER Radio 107.3. Oversight for this series by 2SER Station Manager, Melanie Withnell. If you like what you heard and want 2SER to continue making original podcasts, you can donate today or become a 2SER supporter. Just head to 2SER.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It'll help other people find Just Words.
Okay, maybe we lied about the last word going to Simon Rice. We want to leave you with a song, the lyrics of which Tony Morris included in a footnote tucked away on page 56 of his 153-page submission to the Parliamentary Inquiry. How it relates to Section 18C is beyond us, but hey, it's a catchy tune. Enjoy. One evening in October, when I was about one-third sober, and I was taking home a load with manly pride, my poor feet began to stutter, so I lay down in the gutter, and a pig came up and lay down by my side. Then we sang a song, Fairweather, when good fellows get together, till a lady passing by was heard to say, uh, she says, you can tell a man who boozes by the company he chooses, and the pig got up and slowly walked away. As the pig got up, and slowly walked away, slowly walked away, slowly walked away.